Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, for um, the next session. Um, there's a, a bit of a change in the schedule. It's a slight technical change, it's not big. But at the end of this uh, period with the, the professor, uh, the next break is going to be in an hour. And uh, at that time, usually the 45-minute break is going to be scheduled, uh, we scheduled down to 30. So if you can remember that and be back in the room uh, uh, in the 30-minute uh, instead of the 45-minute, uh, then we can proceed with the next hour. Uh, this is going to be uh, the uh, professor's last full hour, he'll be on the last one, but uh, uh, he's going to be speaking on uh, the question of why the Chinese are encouraging, the government is encouraging its people to buy gold and silver. So, professor. Thank you, <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the uh, other day, there was a little group talking about various things, and I was asked the question by one of the participants, what should I do if I was invited by China to become an advisor or a consultant? Well, <laughs> I was very well prepared for that question because I <laughs> knew that the talk was coming up. So I uh, gave uh, my uh, questioner a seven-point manifesto. What should China do? So I'll share this manifesto with you now. Seven, seven points are as follows. First, I would commend China for its incredibly courageous and far-sighted move in making the private ownership and trade in gold and silver legal once more, because for a long, long time it was outlawed by China. This was far-sighted because I don't think any other government in the world did that before, inviting the, the sub citizens, the subject, to save in the form of gold and silver. On the contrary, they encouraged them to, first of all, not to save, because that's the new creed of Keynes, saving is damaging the economy, but if there is any talk of saving, of course, save in the form of paper currency. So the, this is, uh, was an incredible move, uh, coming as it is from the most populous country on the earth. And uh, I think this is going to change the world ultimately. It was, didn't have an immediate effect, but ultimately it will. So certainly China deserves a very, very high mark for this step. However, in itself, this step is not enough. I would urge China, that's still point one of my manifesto, I would urge China 
to uh, carve that into stone and make a constitutional commitment that this right will not be abridged by future governments. In other words, the Chinese people will have that right forever and it will not be tampered with by any future government. This was missing from the American Constitution, which is a marvelous document, but it did not uh, carve into stone the ownership. It just said that uh, the dollar should be defined in terms of silver and gold, and the government should maintain a mint. So that is point number one in the manifesto. Carve into stone the right of the people to save in the form of gold and silver. Point number two refers to the problem of China having a huge hoard of American government paper. The figure of 2.3 trillion dollars is being bandied about. I assume that this is close to the actual figure or and uh, this is an unprecedented figure in his historical terms of any country having the debt instruments of another country. But this is a big problem for China because there is, of course, no hope that the Chinese government can sell this in any way of her form. The uh, best they can hope for is that uh, they can use it to to acquire property in America, but the numbers are just too big to have to diversify. So what to do with that? If China tried to sell any significant amount, it would destroy the bond market. And China would be the first one to get hurt by that. So this is a big problem for the Chinese. Well, I have a suggestion for China what to do with it. Just hedge it. Hedge it. And actually disclose the plan, the strategy, how to hedge it. Hedge it with gold. In other words, China would keep buying gold into weakness. In other words, don't buy when the price of gold is strong. Buy when it weakens. And it's not trading, it's just keep buying. And tell the world that this is what they are doing. 
In other words, the world will know that China is con going to continue to accumulate gold as a hedge for the for the hoard of the American Treasury paper. And set an example to the world, other countries. China is the biggest hoarder of U.S. Treasury paper. There are others, Japan and Taiwan and many other countries. So, if you assume that the gold price keeps going up, it, it doesn't matter because any weakening will bring in China as an ultimate uh, bidder for the gold, but only on weakness. This will have a very interesting effect on the market. <laughs> and once the was a substantial part of this board of American Treasury paper is hedged, then China don't, doesn't have to worry about uh, being trapped in, in that ownership, by that ownership, because ultimately it will be compensated for by its gold hoard. Just think about this. This is a very interesting question. What would such an announcement uh, do to the gold market? I suggest that it will be a very positive development. <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to that announcement. <laughs> By the way, one unfortunate aspect of this is that uh, I think whenever China indicated to the United States that it would use any part of this uh, to buy property or businesses or this or that in the United States, the answer was negative. In other words, the Americans are censoring. It's, uh, China is not free to spend that saving in the United States as it pleases, when it would like to acquire some uh, industry, factories, or agriculture, then the American government exercises a veto right, which is, of course, what it means is that uh, you cannot consider China as a free agent can do what it wants with, with its own savings. So that would be the second point in the manifesto, manifesto. The third point is, it may sound familiar to most of you, open the Chinese mint to gold. Now I've been advocating opening the government mint to gold by any country, by small or big. But if China opened its mint to gold and silver, by the way, 
which means giving people the unconditional right to convert gold and silver bullion into gold and silver coins in unlimited amounts free of charge, no seniorage charge, there could be an essay charge or any transaction cost, but for the coinage itself there would be no charge, just as the American Constitution prescribed uh, it. This would be an enormous, an enormously important development. Just imagine uh, did we show that chart to the audience about the percentage of the value of gold coins as opposed to gold bullion? I think we did. Yeah, yeah, brown day. And at the low end of the scale, it's uh, it's five or six percent, right? So there would be tremendous incentive for people to take their gold and silver to China and go to the mint, China, and, and demand panda gold coins in exchange, and China would comply. So then, because there is this implicit promise of a, uh, immediate appreciation, gold in coin form is worth, as money, is worth slightly more than gold in bullion form. And this may sound as a, a burden on the Chinese because they have to bear the cost of coinage. But in fact, it would return manifold because the movement of gold to China would have all kinds of beneficial effects, which I will make clear in the next point of my manifesto. So this, this would be a first in modern history, modern meaning that in the 21st century certainly there is no government which gives the right to holders of gold or silver bullion to convert gold and the mint on demand in unlimited amounts. In the 20th century there was, but such rights were abolished against the American Constitution which uh, prescribes that the government has to provide that service, uh, free coinage to, at the mint, to hold to bearers of gold bullion. Now number four of my, on the list, my manifesto will Reinforce number three, but this is very important to my way of thinking. Establish the world's first gold bank. There is no gold bank in the world today. There was one until about 2002, which was the Bank for International Settlements, and then Paul Volcker went to Switzerland and started twisting arms, and as a result, the Bank for International Settlements, uh, this, uh, which up to that point carried its 
books in terms of the Swiss franc, gold franc, that's pre-1936 gold franc. In 1936 Switzerland devalued its money just like the United States and then earlier by Britain didn't even devalue. Britain simply went off the gold standard. The United States went off the gold standard but then went back to the gold standard at a with a lighter dollar. Dollar was redefined in terms of gold, but it was a lighter uh, unit because the first official gold price was around $20 an ounce and after 1934 the new uh, par value of the dollar was, um, as you know, 35 dollars per ounce. However, it was illegal for the Americans to have gold, but in the world, if the dollar was circulating outside the United States, foreign central banks and foreign governments could take their gold dollars to the treasury and get in exchange gold at that rate $35 an ounce. So in Switzerland this uh, Bank for International Settlements was not open to do business, I mean the public was not free to do business in gold governments were and central banks were and international institutions were uh, free to have an account and as I say, the bank had its books in gold units, but that was abolished uh, very early in the 21st century. So, as it is now, at this moment, there is no gold bank in the world. Now, I think China is in a very good position to establish a gold bank, and this gold bank uh, would be there for people who took their gold to China and uh, the Chinese mint would convert it into panda gold coins, then they could deposit it in this bank and use it for world trade. Now I have to explain this because the trouble with gold is that it is presently in hiding. Most of the monetary gold of the world is in hiding. It's in private uh, ownership, but it's frozen. People who own gold are not willing to, to uh, uh, first of all, identify themselves that they are the owners, and secondly, to uh, part with their gold, because they don't trust the paper money. So the question is, uh, how could this freeze be melted down? And the answer is, a, a country, an important country, should establish an old bank. And once they do, once there is such a gold bank, little by little, it won't be overnight, but little by little, people will 
have trust in the system and they may be willing to release some gold and then it could get into circulation. So this point in my manifesto goes hand in hand with the previous on open domain because the problem why people do not release gold from their private hoards is that they are not convinced that they can get this gold back on the same terms. So if they sold gold, the price could go up and then they would not be able to get it back except at a sacrifice. But once the mint is open, once the Chinese open their mint to gold worldwide, not just to their own subjects, the Chinese people, but also to all comers who take the bullion to the mint, who get the gold. Once this is established and, uh, and the world accepts this, that this is not a gimmick, this is not a trap, then gold will little by little start circulating again. And this would be a tremendous development because that means that it's not just in theory but in practice gold would occupy its place as the most important form of money in the world. So that would be the world's first gold bank uh, in, the 19, in the 21st century. Presently there is no such thing. Number five is a similar proposal. Establish the world's first gold life insurance company. So China could offer life insurance to anybody who is willing to uh, commit himself or herself to pay the premium in gold. And that's not just life insurance, but annuities, gold annuities, and uh, any kind of uh, uh, pension funds could subscribe to it. Uh, pension funds would be able to guarantee the value of their payments in the form of gold if there was a gold life insurance company somewhere, but there isn't. And uh, we tried a little bit in Switzerland, which is famous of its uh, insurance companies, but they were not interested. So China could make waves and could make another tremendous step forward if it allowed a gold life insurance company. So this this could work and it's waiting for a government which has the courage now. China has already proved that it has the courage to do things, meaningful things, not just hocus pocus of Bernanke type uh, <laughs> quantitative easing. Now that would be an extremely important meaningful step forward to start a goal of life insurance company. And of course you could bring in other type of insurance, but I would start with the life insurance. But presently all the uh, existing life insurance companies 
uh, which make uh, life, which offer life insurance, are uh, uh, using paper money, which is, uh, <laughs> as far as life insurance concerned, is suicidal. If you want to commit suicide, <laughs> take up the life insurance. But, but uh, it's not meaningful. Number six, <coughs> the Chinese government could start real bill circulation in the world. Now, a real bill is a short-term instrument, matures in 90 days, and it matures in gold coins. It's a commercial paper. It represents goods moving fast enough from the producer to the <coughs> consumer. If the movement is fast enough, then the real bills will circulate. And this is again a very important step. World trade could be financed in terms of such bills. So presently, the Western countries are not interested in real bills. Uh, we have talked a little bit about this, that there are exceptions here and there. For instance, in the gold uh, mint, Perth mint, uh, you, you, uh, Brown mentioned this, that certain transactions are in short-term gold maturing instruments. And this is a good start, but it, I mean, how can you take the risk? You can take the risk if you are in the gold business, but if you are not in the gold business, then this is a tremendous threat that the gold price could run away, and then you uh, will not be able to meet the, the uh, terms of your uh, contract. But once these things are given, Mint is open to gold and silver. There is a gold bank. Then the, the next log logical step is real bills maturing in gold. And London used to be the clearing house in the 19th century of the real bill trade. People uh, all over the world, whether they were producers or consumers, financed their trade in real bills drawn on London. And because of this trade, London could run the gold standard for the whole world on a very small uh, gold basis. Because gold was on the move. You see. Gold was not sitting there. Gold was always in circulation through the instrument of fields. Now, whether it would be Hong Kong or Shanghai or another city in China which would take over the role of the clearinghouse, I don't know. Perhaps Hong Kong would be the ideal. But the role is cut out. It's, it's, it would be extremely successful if China did that. So number seven is just a slogan. And listen to that. Proletarians of the world unite in gold. <laughs> you can only lose your chains, but you can win the world. These are, of course, uh, 
words, words taken from the Communist Manifesto of 1848. Karl and Engers together formulated it. It's a longer document. It has many more than seven uh, points, but it ended with that uh, call, world proletarians of the world unite. And if you add the word in gold, then this becomes meaningful. And it is, it is a promise to the poor of the world that with a proper monetary system based on gold and based on credit, which ultimately is rooted in gold, there is a hope for uh, general uh, advancement and uh, abolition of poverty worldwide. As you know, this promise was made earlier on by capitalism, but it completely, it was completely derailed by the governments, and uh, they're sticking to irredeemable money. And by now, the gap between the rich, the filthy rich and the filthy poor is getting wider and wider. And now you will find, the latest development is you, you will find the middle class also on, this, on the side of poverty. The middle class is of course the backbone of the society. These are the people who uh, would not consider welfare as a solution. They, are, uh, they raise their children in the earth ethic, which is uh, um, ethics, which is uh, uh, the promise for the nation to rise out of a lower level of development to a higher one. The middle class provides education. The children doesn't wait for governments or charity or this or that, but they have a very good idea what kind of education they want to give to their children. Now, not all teachings of Marx is garbage. Marx defined money as follows, money is gold and gold is money. Well, this is of course uh, just the plain words, but the meaning is that there is no money without gold. And that's if you want to start uh, a, a workable monetary system, you just have to have a solid uh, foundation, which is provided by gold. And and therefore, I think what the world is waiting for is a country to break the ice. And as I started by saying that China demonstrated its enormous courage in inviting its citizens to start saving in gold, China could follow through the other logical steps. So let's hope that this will happen, and let's hope that the Chinese government will listen to what we are saying here, and perhaps start thinking about these things. Uh, if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer. For very When you said gold insurance policy, this literally brought tears to my eyes. I think this is, <laughs> kind of this crowd, is beyond incredible. And I just came from Shanghai uh, before this trip, 
and I, my Chinese interpreter doing business and back and forth lives in Australia here. And when we started to talk about helping the, the billion poor Chinese in some way or another, his eyes were listed over. So I think they are the right people, and this is a wonderful plan. God bless you, sir. Oh, thank you. God bless you, China. If I could just say, just again, the slightly devil's advocate, but China historically has not been about freedom, and gold is freedom. Yes. As we see, the Western world denies us that freedom. Yes. I have not seen China treading a more altruistic path. Yeah. Well. Uh, I am I, uh, aware of this problem, and I may mention two episodes from history. One is the uh, slogan which uh, Mao Zedong, the founder of the Chinese People's Republic, it's now 60 years old this, this year, uh, introduced a wonderful slogan which I remember at the time I was still at university and I just liked the slogan very much. The slogan went something like this let a thousand flowers bloom and let hundreds of schools compete. It's a wonderful slogan. In other words China as a self declared communist country uh, holding the theory of Marx and Engels in, in uh, great honor suggested freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of so as a young man I, I was very enthusiastic about this but what followed was terrible. It was the cultural revolution. You see, people who were sticking their necks out, their heads were chopped off. Now, he didn't walk at all. It was looked in retrospect like an invitation. We have lots of enemies out there hiding, but let's invite them. To, by promising freedom to identify themselves and then we won't have to uh, hunt for them because uh, they identify themselves and you will be ready to. So this was very, very unfortunate. But this was nothing new. It uh, was a kind of imitation of the original policy of Lenin in Soviet Russia. This was still while Lenin was alive, he declared the so-called NEP, N-E-P, it means New Economic Policy. The idea was that after the terrible hyperinflation, after uh, war communism, when the Soviet government grabbed all uh, enterprises, uh, the at Lenin's initiative, the Soviet government would allow uh, capitalism to regroup, at least in in, uh, in a smaller scale. It, that didn't mean huge enterprises, but it did mean that uh, individual entrepreneurs could start their businesses and um, the government would give grant them freedom, which happened and it worked very nicely. 
The problem was that, again, the communist government used this to identify its enemies and then made a 180 degree turn and then wiped them out, grabbing their uh, little capital and uh, herding them into concentration camps and so on. And, uh, and so, in other words, the record is not good. The record is not good. But I, I think these are different times. And I am just perhaps putting too much credence uh, because of this uh, declaration of the Chinese government that people can save in the form of gold. Uh, and if they can follow it up with some kind of constitutional guarantee or some kind of uh, gesture which would uh, commit future government. I, I'm, I'm not saying that um, uh, the present government did this in bad faith. I'm not saying that. I think they did it in good faith and it was a wonderful step, very far forward looking. What I'm saying is that the present government cannot commit future governments to follow up on this. Or at least hasn't done anything in that direction. So there's missing, something is missing here. Professor. A, a kind of declaration that this present government does what it can to commit future governments to, so a kind of constitutional uh, 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 right, so that this right should be carved into stone. When you uh, first made that remark about the uh, suggestion of a constitutional amendment in China, I thought that might be its death knell coming from the United States. Um, because certain things were carved into, quote, stone in the United States. And if it was stone, it wasn't granite, it was soapstone. All right? And, and it, history is a funny thing. It, it, it changes, it reinterprets, and it has its own exigencies as we move forward. But in listening to the professors, to your thoughts here, it's a particular interest to me because, one, I'm Chinese, and two, I majored in Chinese in East Asian history. Um, that's, what, that's what my major was. And so I'm well aware of the Chinese authoritarian, you know, their, their, way, their rule of law and their history. But speaking in terms of these current times, we're in crisis. The Chinese have emerged late into a world built by the West, built on paper currencies. The Chinese were intruded upon the West with paper currencies. Britain came to China and forced open, under the guise of free trade, Hmm. liberalized trade. And in fact, it wasn't even England that declared war on China. It was the British East India Company. Hmm. So let's talk about corporations, let's talk about free trade, and let's talk about globalization. That happened and then resulted in the first two opium wars. Because China said they wanted silver for their porcelains, teas, and silks. And the British loved Porcelain, tea, and silk. <laughs> but for all their vaunted talk about a precious metal-backed currency, they weren't about to back it up. <coughs> and so they went to war and forced China in a series of humiliating defeats to accept free trade. 
And China <coughs> accepted the right of the British to sell opium to its people. So we have a country that has a history of dealing with the West and dealing with the West paper money. A few a couple hundred years later, they have more paper money from the West than any country in the world. And they thought for a while, because they were sort of late to the table, they didn't know what, how it worked, they didn't know what was working, that they're doing quite well. And it was only recently that they looked at their stash of paper money and realized it was a depreciating asset that could depreciate faster than they knew what to do with it. And this is where they are now. So I would only like to put on the tables that we're all forced into these boxes. We don't know how we're going to get out of here. All right? We do know that England, the United States, and the Western powers are committed to the continuance of a paper money fiat currency regime. It may appear ironic that the countries that first took up the banner of Lenin and Marx are the countries that have come out strongly for gold. But it's not curious in that respect because the truth of the matter is there's a simple rule. Those who sell goods and services would rather be paid in gold and silver and those who buy those goods and services would rather pay off in paper. Russia has natural resources, they have oil, they have natural gas, blah, 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 blah. China has manufactured goods. We're in an impasse. Whose benefit is it to move to gold and silver? It is clear. It is absolutely clear. It is in the best interest of China and Russia. And, well, and their people. And their people. And their people. The government as well yes. as the people. The Chinese did not encourage their people to buy gold and silver for no reason at all. No reason at all. What they realized were they were in trouble. They were holding pieces of paper from the West that made them believe they were doing well that could evaporate in an instant. I have always said that paper money is merely a coupon with an expiration date written in disappearing ink. <laughs> and it can go in an instant. And the Chinese now know this. All right? So what you have is you have a developing world. We're in, the, we're in a developing, it's always been changing, but it's rapidly changing now. China and Russia have a vested interest in gold and silver. They both have a history of authoritarian rule, to put it mildly, all right? And the West, I mean, we can talk all we, I can talk all I want about England. God knows those are the people who came up with the Magna Carta. God knows those are the people who came up with the rights of the people against the king. God knows that this is where those thoughts came from. We don't know where we're headed. We don't know how the synergies of the East and West are come together. But we do know, those of us sitting in the room, that for some bizarre twist of fate and history, that the damn Chinese and the Russians are talking about gold. And here we are in the West and lovers of freedom in this room. I mean, I will tell you one thing. This is a strange group of people. <laughs> All right? From strange background. From the political spectrum on the right to the left to those in the whole... The only spectrum that's really not represented here is the middle, basically. And yet we are united in our support of gold and silver and freedom. 
All right? So, so what we're doing is we're looking at where the bet is. We're looking at the bet that what we've got is we've got a developing situation where these two countries with a basically authoritarian background are now looking, because it's in their best interest to go to gold, gold and silver. All right? The world is in a state of change. We have seen bastions of freedom, the United States and England, to turn into virtual totalitarian states. If you are free in those countries, it's because you choose not to act outside their box. Not because you are free. You are walking around in a miasma of the past with slogans. I've seen what happens in America and I see what happened in England. And it's tragic. And so I might just want to put out that perhaps that fascism in the guise of state freedom in the West may turn into actual freedom in the East. That's a bet I'm not sure I'm willing to make, but it may be a bet we may have to take. Hi, sir. Professor, I, I noted um, some about a month or two ago an official, I think, I'm not sure what their authority was in China, but they were quoted by Ambrose in the London Telegraph saying that they were buying gold but not doing so to stimulate yeah. the price, uh, which is a funny way of putting it. And to say it publicly indicates that they're almost playing mind games with the, the, the Western um, powers, uh, buying on use, as you suggest. Um, and also in regard to hedging, um, not just in gold, they I'm not sure what the nature of the contracts they signed with Australia in terms of liquid metals <coughs> exports are. But if they were fixed US dollar contracts that pay no attention to the benchmark prices internationally, then they could slowly over the decade-long gas contract liquidate their treasury holdings and pay for the gas that way. And so they've hedged against uh, US currency depreciation by signing long-term energy deals and the like, which they're doing all over the world. Um, so that's two examples of hedging. And so it sounds like they're certainly um, on that path, which is very, very promising. I think he was recapitulating <laughs> what seemed to be happening with the Chinese and merely announcing what they have been doing mm -hmm. is buying on dips. Chinese don't like paying high prices. And they did announce that their gold reserves have considerably increased over the last 10 years. So which, they, is, which is the result of a policy. Yes, exactly like that. So in a way they're already but, but doing it. But it hasn't been announced. No, it hasn't been announced. It should be announced. Yes, but they, that's what he said. It was, it was surprising that they did say that they are interested in gold because it, I think they're getting pressed a little closer towards having to come forward. You know, and, and that's why, I mean, I, we were talking with Mr. Song over here who has, he lives from China, I mean Hong Kong, and, and um, we were talking about the, the Chinese question and he, he mentioned, because he wants to bring uh, the professor to China, and, 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 and because his, his advice in this time, he said, is, is needed by China, and I think they found out that Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase and, and, and Blackstone have an agenda 
<laughs> really? Yeah. That isn't necessarily to their liking. I, a, a friend of mine was in a, a meeting with some Chinese people, uh, officials or bankers, and, and, and he made this very pointed remark. He, by the way, is not American. And he said to the, the Chinese at the table, he said, um, when are you going to wake up to the nature of your American friends? The Chinese were very quiet. They don't like, they've got this thing called face. They don't like to insult. They don't like to be insulted. And so they sort of avoid the truth sometimes. But he said it was a pause at the table. And one of the gentlemen spoke up and he said, Sir, we already know. In that tone of voice. And so it is. This wasn't true two years ago. This certainly wasn't true five years ago, all right? They believe like investment, investment entities like Temasek in, and GIC in Singapore were making vast returns on their paper investments in the West, and this is the way to go. And Chinese love investments. They like gambling. They're very good at it, all right? <laughs> and now they've come up and realized that it is truly gambling, all right? And they're a little much more tentative about what to do. Mr. Song said, and I think it's, it's important that we realize this now, he said, before it was too early, soon it will be too late. Now it's the right time. <laughs> We're all in the same boat, Chinese, Australians. I mean, you guys over here are in a better boat than Martha and I are in. I have to admit it. Could you uh, repeat what you heard from Bob Mandel, who visited China several times in the capacity of an advisor or consultant? I was in Palazzo Mundell, as you know, earlier this year, and uh, Mundell saved those red uh, uh, drapes which were stretched on the streets welcoming him. He got a, <laughs> a ticker, uh, what in New York would correspond to a ticker tape parade, yeah. a, a very warm welcome. So it's all in red and then in Chinese and English that they are welcoming the Nobel Prize laureate uh, Robert Mundell. And uh, he, he thought this was very nice and heartwarming, so he asked the Chinese to, to give it to them. And now this is in his palace. There's a huge room bigger than this one, and it just goes around <laughs> the, the welcoming uh, uh, message to him. So I, I know you talked to him or exchanged uh, emails or something, and uh, he, he was, well, of course, he's very cautious. He did not uh, recommend gold outright. No, no. Because, uh, you know, given, given his present role. But I talked to him several times, and I think he knows that the paper uh, money yes. age is, is yes. over. Uh, Robert Mundell is a Canadian economist who is tenured at Columbia University and he won the Nobel Prize in 1999 for economics. And some time ago I had occasion to, um, to communicate with Mr. Mundell about 
an idea I had about a gold bank. And I spoke with a professor about it later, about what could be done. And in that interchange, I learned a lot about Mundell. And he said that what he did was the first thing in the morning, he checked the gold price. All right? Just go away. Check the gold price. And he said, as much as central banks like to not talk about gold, they're acutely aware of it. All right? And he, in his thoughts about the future and how it might appear, he projected that we were going to return and be forced to return to a global reference currency that had a gold component. Mm -hmm. All right, That's, it was a given. He didn't know who was going to do it, where it was going to come from, but it was going to happen. All right, it was going to be forced on us by, by practicality, by necessity. It made things easier. Mundell also believes that we're going to break down into various currency realms, the United States, and this may or may not happen, all right, but this is what he thinks that happens. And, and, he's all, it, it, and he believes that gold is money. He also believes that we can act as if it is not. And so he treads a, a middle ground in that way that he lives in the world of money, he talks about the world of paper, and he's, he's conversant with it and he's well respected for his positions about it. But underneath it, I mean much like Alan Greenspan, he knows that gold is money. And so what he did was, um, he, he felt that China had, had a purpose. In fact, I, I was talking with him about ways of getting this idea in, who to approach, and that's what he gave me some advice on. Um, I was very naive at the time. And, uh, but subsequently, Mandela has done a lot, spent a lot of time in China. His son is learning Chinese. He's going to university there. And Mandela has publicly called upon the Chinese government to convene a, um, a symposium on monetary reform, in, you know, blah, 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 with a bunch of international experts. Now, Mr. Song has, he, he came to this conference and with the idea of perhaps opening the door for the professor to come because he felt that China needed such advice. That without the ideas, I mean, we know how very few people even understand what the professor, his experience is, what the that the purpose of a, a gold standard is the stabilization of interest rates. So commerce can be stable, can have a real foundation, all right, and et cetera, et cetera, like that, that they, they didn't know of these ideas. You know, we talked about that, what the professor had said the other day about that the interest rate arbitrage of the bank should be outlawed because of its destabilizing effect. These are things that you only know the nuances of paper systems by careful, careful capital destruction, for example. And, he's, and, and Mr. Song believed that this is something the Chinese would welcome at least the discussion of. The Chinese are an ultimately practical people. And, and we don't know where we're going to go with this. And Mundell has, you know, in fact what you said, Professor, made me think that the Chinese might be much more open, Mr. Song, to speaking to the professor in private than having a public symposium in Beijing on monetary reform. They don't like the spotlight. Yes, that, that is my, my experience too. I, I go to China a few times on my business and very much so like a private discussion before anything public is ever announced. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and so Mundell has been pushing for monetary reform in China. They respect him. They know who he is. All right. And Mundell is, I mean, he, Mr. Mundell, he invited the professor 
to a round table of the paper boys. And, and I love your reaction that you, you, you circulated that paper that you presented us yesterday about the destruction of capital with lower interest rates and it was uh, politely ignored <laughs> by everyone. They don't want to touch it. But Mundell invited the professor there after hearing him speak at the CMRE in New York. All right? And it's like life. You don't need a majority. Sometimes you need only one. You may not need the gates to be blown open, sometimes you may need a side door. You don't need an auditorium, sometimes you may get by with one seat. And um, that's what I would say about where we're at. Um, and because Michael brought up in the beginning, and, I, 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 and Michael, I do believe in the futility. I'm, I'm cynical as hell. All right? I, it's a wonder I can take a next breath. All right? But we are compelled. And, and, and I think that's what the professor is such an ideal to those of us you know, who've had the honor to know him in a personal sense. That, that, that he has a commitment to the truth. He has a commitment. As he said before, he said, we, we can only keep trying. We can only keep trying. And doors may be opening that we don't know. I mean, and I want to thank all of you for coming here. It supports this. It supports the dialogue. It keeps the flame going. And, and uh, the, the, the idea of the Chinese speaking to him is, is really interesting. And, and the idea that he brought this up, Mr. Song is here, whose intended purpose was to open doors for the professor in China. Yeah, Rudy. I'd just like to add that they are the perfect people for this. They earned their wealth the old-fashioned way. They worked for it. They worked hard for it. They're building real goods out of real materials. And they don't need paper shenanigans. They want to get rid of the paper shenanigans. Well, you know, it's 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 too. But see, the Chinese are a communist country in a way, in in, in a way. They're certainly not after Deng Xiaoping in that classic way. But the Chinese also have a very strong practical impetus towards social welfare. They're sitting on a nation of two billion people. If unemployment rises. The, it, the results are catastrophe. The, the happiest people are people you don't have to rule. The, happy, the, 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 the best way to rule is not with an iron rod, is you don't have to have a rod at all. And I think the Chinese underneath it may default to that. But they are concerned about the welfare of their people. They do not want them to be the victim of the paper shenanigans of the West. And they will do something to protect them from that. And one thing I, I would love to explain in China is the wage fund, which the real bill circulation represents. You see, there is a problem. The consumer wants those goods very badly, but it takes time to manufacture them and to bring them to the consumer. And sometimes it takes as long as 90 days. So how are you going to pay the workers which produce those goods, which will only be sold in 90 days? You have to pay them. Now, you can pay them if there's a wage fund. But the wage fund which existed in the world was destroyed in 1909 when uh, France and Germany made the banknotes legal tender because that put an end 
to rebuild, uh, to well, cut it, cut the ground from underneath the real build circulation because real bills have to mature in gold coin. They cannot mature in irredeemable paper money because that would be a contradiction in term. Real bill uh, would be in every way superior to irredeemable paper money. So if China has a problem of unemployment, the way out is real bill circulation. Just finance the export instead of uh, <laughs> accumulating U.S. Treasury paper, introduce gold maturing real bills and you've got the wage fund and there will be no unemployment in China because everybody in China wants to earn wages can find some kind of consumer goods which is demanded in the West and he can get immediate payment in wages because the real bills are the best substitute for the circulating gold coin. I, I think this is just like a glove fits the hand for China. The real bill circular, it doesn't cost them anything, it's just have to have a mint which is open to gold and silver, have to have a gold bank and then they are business. They finance Chinese exports in terms of gold and the gold will come because people can take advantage of that uh, five or six percent premium which gold coins come and this may even shrink but still there will be an incentive for people from all over the world bring their gold to China, coin, get the panda coins and then they can earn the discount uh, in the form of uh, financing the trade in real bills. And China would be the torch showing the world uh, how the problem of unemployment can be solved for once and all. Real bills maturing in gold coins, that's the secret. And uh, the Western economists are just too obtuse to uh, understand or even to listen. They are, they are not listening. Now, I only expect the Chinese would listen because the power of logic will do the rest. Well, Adam Smith won. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Um, we have a half hour break. Uh, please uh, return here for the last hour at 4 o'clock in 27 minutes. Thank you.